Being a chef means keeping your cool in the kitchen. And with Resi Priority Notify and Global Dining Access through my Amex Platinum card, right this way, it's nice to try someone else's food for a change. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Getting ready to take on spring? Make your first move with the reliable performance and power of steel battery tools. From hedge trimmers and mowers to string trimmers and more, Right now, you can save $50 on select battery tool sets. Real steel. Offer valid on select AK system sets through June 16, 2024. See participating retailer for details. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average. Plus, it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cb for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. What's up, Open Floor Globe? This is Ben Golliver with The Washington Post. I am joined on the other line by Michael the Pod Pina of Sports Illustrated. Now, Michael, you and I tape about 100 podcasts a year. They can't all be good news, happy podcasts. And unfortunately, I feel like this one was kind of a nightmare scenario over the weekend for the NBA. You look around, boom. One day, LeBron James goes down with a high ankle sprain. Boom. The next day, LaMelo Ball, probably the most exciting rookie we've seen, maybe outside of Zion Williamson uh, in the last five years, goes down with a fractured wrist. And now we're all sitting around looking at an NBA in advance of the trade deadline that's missing an awful lot of star players. I think Steph Curry got injured recently. Joel Embiid's obviously been out. Kevin Durant may never return. Hopefully at some point we get to watch KD play basketball, Michael. It's been a really tough run from the injury perspective. And I think the the only place to start here really is with LeBron James and the impacts on the Los Angeles Lakers title defense. Now, I'm going to start this off with kind of an open-ended question for you, Michael. And, you know, apologies for kind of the, uh, the crude framing here. But on a 1 to 10 scale, How screwed are the Los Angeles Lakers right now? Because if you go back to before uh, Valentine's Day, they were absolutely cruising, looking like easily the championship favorite. Right now, they're in a situation where they still don't know precisely when Anthony Davis is going to return to the lineup with his calf injury. And now LeBron could miss something like a month, potentially, with a high ankle sprain, which is certainly a more severe injury than your typical ankle sprain. They're going to try to make do with guys like Dennis Schroeder, Kyle Kuzma, Montrez Harrell, uh, and they're going to really lean on their defense, which has been really strong so far this season. But this is the nightmare scenario for Frank Vogel. So what do you think, Michael? One to ten, how screwed are the Los Angeles Lakers right now? So I see this question through two separate lenses. The first is, 
obviously it's not a good thing that LeBron and AD are both out at the same time. Like this is this roster is is super top heavy. It's built for those two superstars to work in tandem and lift everybody around them higher. So when they're both out for extended period extended period of time, like I'm putting the especially this late in the year, like I'm putting the the grade here at about an eight on the screwed scale. But I want to flip it around and say, like, how screwed <laughs> is the one or two seed um, in the Western Conference when the season ends? Because we know that the Lakers are not going to get there, um, and the Lakers are probably going to slide into the play-in round in the play-in tournament. So if I'm Utah or Phoenix or maybe the Clippers work things out and can get up into that one-two seed range... I feel like I know this is a question we were going to tackle later, but I feel like that's the more intriguing angle here. Um, and obviously, the Lakers, you know, having to go through a one or two seed in round one is not ideal if you have championship aspirations. But I'm 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 a little le- less concerned given the fact that they have AD, the fact that they have LeBron, they have a bunch of guys who have a championship pedigree. They're defending champs. They deserve the benefit of the doubt. But I just kind of feel bad for whoever gets the one, two, maybe the three seed. Maybe you know maybe LA is able to get the six seed. I, I kind of doubt it. But um, that the the top team in the Western Conference is the one that just really should be looking at this injury and not not happy about it. No, I hear you. Look, there's going to be all sorts of shenanigans potentially going on down the stretch in terms of trying to figure out what the matchups are going to look like depending on where the Los Angeles Lakers wind up sliding to. So as of right now on Monday, they're in the West third seed, but they're only a couple games up in the loss column on the seventh seed. So All it will take here is a rough stretch over the next couple of weeks when they're still expected to be without their two stars for them to fall back into that six, seven, or even potentially eight range. Now, it doesn't seem like even in an absolute worst case scenario, there's any way for the Lakers to completely fall out of the play-in picture, right? So uh, you can't give them a 10 on the one to 10 screwed scale because they're going to make the playoffs in one form or another. But their path could be uh, significantly more complicated if they do wind up falling into that playing round. You're just going to have to deal with the stress and the scheduling um, issues there. If you do wind up winning those games and setting up your first round opponent, you're going to be playing a more uh, well-rested opponent. And I also do think it's worth pointing out that the Lakers had excellent continuity and chemistry during last year's playoffs. It was overshadowed by their talent, but they basically had all of their main guys on the court together for practically that entire playoff run. And that really, really helps. I think when you're looking at matchups against teams like Denver and Utah that are you know pretty disciplined, uh, pretty together, have core groups that have played um, you know with each other for multiple years, mm-hmm. um, one way to overcome that talent disparity and some of those tough matchups for those other teams um, would be to get the Lakers in a situation where they're not clicking on all cylinders. And when you're looking forward to how you're going to manage these returns, well, Anthony Davis will probably return before LeBron. So that's going to be one adjustment process. Then you'll have LeBron return. That's going to be another adjustment process. And then you're really going to want to ramp up into playoff mode. And that's going to be another adjustment process. And all of that could get really tricky. So I actually think a couple of these teams, whether it's uh, Utah or Denver, teams that maybe I would have said, I don't really love how they match up with the Lakers if both teams are at full strength. 
I could actually see them now having a little bit of advantage in those matchups compared to the past, just because the state of the, of the Lakers flux with their roster. Now, your point on the top heaviness, it's so true. It's funny, my favorite question to kind of pop up here over the last couple of days is like, what does this do for the Lakers at the trade deadline? And it's like, guys, come on. What are they going to do? Go out and get the best version of a replacement of LeBron and grab Luka or the best Anthony Davis replacement and grab Bam out of bio? There's absolutely nothing the Lakers can really do uh, to make up for their their current predicament. And so they're just going to have to take their lumps. I think if you're Frank Vogel, your short-term goal here is to try to go 500 and that might actually be a best case scenario, uh, but you're going to try to go 500. You've got a very tough stretch coming up with games against the Clippers, the Nets, the 76ers. A bunch of those are on national television, so that's a little bit rough. And you're really going to have to take care of business against the bad teams. I think they both they play both Cleveland and Orlando this week. If they drop those games, Michael, this thing could get really ugly really quick for the LA Lakers. Yeah, you know, I'm looking at the schedule right now, and it's kind of, uh, there's some really good teams, as you pointed out, and there's just, there's a stretch of, like, I don't really know how long AD is going to be out also, which is a factor here. The latest on that, by the way, they said earlier this month, he would be reevaluated later this week, but he's still anticipated to uh, miss the rest of March at minimum. Mm. Well... I mean, having AD back is for sure a positive. Obviously, he was the most valuable player in the bubble, in my opinion, and a top five player all around when healthy. Uh, but LeBron is is everything to this team, and if I'm the Lakers, like I'm going to be super cautious with ramping him back up, getting him back in the fold, knowing that I'm probably going to have to play in the play-in tournament, which is, you know, in this era of um, of the three-point line just kind of dictating everything, that's just not something I want to be a part of if I'm trying to win a championship. You know, anything can happen in one basketball game or two basketball games. So that makes me a little bit nervous. And then also the other factor that we haven't really had to deal with in a very long time because of the pandemic is home court advantage. And in the playoffs, like, you know, the vaccine's getting rolled out here. Uh, There's, you know, talk of everyone having um, an ability to get vaccinated by May 1st. Uh, in this country. And so uh, it's just going to be really interesting to see how that impacts things with, you know, uh, if there are fans um, in arenas uh, in, in a more rub- robust way than we've seen this season and the impact that has and the impact of, you know, if you're the Lakers, you're not going to have a uh, home court advantage in a game seven period in any series, except maybe against, uh, the Los Angeles Clippers if you face them. So I think that that's another variable here that we got to look at. Yeah, on the home court advantage side, California has basically not let teams have any fans whatsoever. They're just a little bit further behind in the process in terms of when they're going to open things up. So from the Lakers standpoint, missing out on having a higher seed, actually it doesn't really hurt them that much because they were likely going to have very limited crowds at best in those early playoff rounds, which are scheduled right now um, for mid-May. So I think that is one point. And if they do wind up drawing the Clippers in a first-round series, then it won't really matter because they're playing in the same building for that entire series, right? So, um, you know, for them, could it get into a situation where now you're going on the road and you need to win in Utah, where they've had some pretty large crowds 
um, for a lot of the season. That could get a little bit trickier. I would point out, I'm not super worried about that stuff for the Lakers. They actually have the NBA's best combined road record this year and last year. So since LeBron and AD got together, they are the NBA's best road team um, you know, overall. And then, of course, LeBron has a long track record of winning road games. It was something like 29 straight series where he had won at least one road game, I think, before the 2017 finals. So I don't think he's necessarily super um, concerned about that. But of course, you know, they've got to worry about this this play-in mix. Let me ask you this, Michael. Um, would it be the all-time example of a league shooting itself in the foot if they tried to have the play-in tournament to generate more television interest and get everyone excited and somehow like the Memphis Grizzlies eliminated the Los Angeles Lakers in the play-in tournament, costing the NBA probably tens of millions of television uh, revenue. I mean, wouldn't that be just really, really rough look from the financial side for the league? I mean, I'm, I'm surprised to hear this after your strong uh, defense of John Morant over Zion in our last episode, but um, well, hey, look, no, that, I love them too, but I'm pretty sure there's still more fans of LeBron and the Lakers than my guys there in Memphis. I mean, that would yeah. be the ultimate like us against the world mentality. You go into that game just expecting like, oh, everyone's rooting for the Lakers to kind of advance. But that's definitely not a, a scenario the Lakers w- you know, would have expected to be in. And I guess uh, your point is right, though, regardless of what happens in those seven and eight games. The teams at the top of the playoffs have to be eyeing the Lakers. So if you were the Phoenix Suns or you were the Utah Jazz and you saw the the Lakers slipping and and they were looking like they were going to be in that play-in mix at 7 or 8, would you intentionally try to lose or rest players to get yourself down to the 3 seed so you could avoid them? Even though you know everyone would call you out for doing so, is it still worth it? Because that's the ultimate, like, worst uh, reward for having one of the league's best records is to have to deal with LeBron James and Anthony Davis in a first-round series where you don't have a true home court advantage, right? Yeah, at once I think that that's, like, the true loser's mentality. Like, it's very fatalistic to just be like, we need to avoid the Lakers in round one. Um knowing that you have to probably play them at some point if you want to win the championship. Like, all roads to the title go through LeBron anyway, if you're Utah, if you're Phoenix, if you're the Clippers. So that would be pretty pathetic. But on the other hand, I'm kind of like, you should probably rest up. (laughs) You should probably, like, give your stars some dates off. It would be pathetic like a fox, Michael. You know, he'd be savvy like a fox. Um, Well, here's the thing. When you're looking around this league right now and you're seeing so many guys injured, does it change your mentality on how you handle minutes down the stretch anyway? Like, for example, if I was uh, one of, you know, Quinn Snyder or Mm -hmm. Monty Williams, and those guys have actually limited their star players' uh, minutes to a a certain degree already this year. I mean, Chris Paul is not playing that much for Phoenix, um, and they're still winning a lot of basketball games. But you're seeing all these other players go down one by one. It's kind of turning into the survival of the fittest, or even like a Mike Budenholzer in Milwaukee with Giannis. Like, you remember some of those political stunts they would do, Michael, where they would be like, hey, we have this new bill, and they would bring out like 7,500 sheets of paper to show it off to like the cameras and be like, here's our new amazing bill. Like, I wonder if I would do one of those uh, political stunts where I just bring out like reams of bubble wrap and just wrap it around Giannis and be like sorry we just can't take any chances before the playoffs we might be falling in the standings but this is just what we have to do almost in like an an ultra load management way because 
I think we've reached the point of the season where we knew it was going to be condensed. We knew it was going to be difficult. We're seeing the injuries pile up. You're also reaching the point where you might not necessarily have enough time to get healthy by the playoffs. Like in the case of LaMelo Ball, I mean, maybe with a broken wrist, he would be able to get back out there if if Charlotte makes the playoffs. Uh, But I I doubt that they would really push him. But for some veteran guys, I mean, if your injury is bad, it's going to keep you out two months. Now, what was the point of everything you've gone through during this crazy year just to miss out, right? So I wonder if we're going to see coaches get more conservative with the minute stuff down the stretch, maybe resting guys more down the stretch. And so maybe it doesn't have to be quite as blatant as just going on like a seven-game losing streak in the last two weeks of the season to avoid the Lakers. Like maybe you can just sort of softly massage these matchups. What do you think? I mean, you're really bringing up just the whole the biggest dilemma with this entire season and playing it as condensed and as rushed as the NBA has been forced or, or has decided to do so. Like there's no way around it. Like when you're playing so many games in such a short amount of time, it's, it's incredible wear and tear on the body, on the mind. And I mean, I think there is a correlation there between how the schedule is set up and the injuries that we've seen, um, you know, there are, you know, I'm just thinking off the top of my head, like the San Antonio Spurs the other night, you know, they have like a million games. If you look at their schedule over the next 60 days or whatever it is, they're trying to make the playoffs and they're just like sitting starters who are perfectly healthy, which you're not supposed to do, but they've had conversations with the league where it's like, we have to do this. Like we, we're, our players are going to get hurt if we do not take these precautionary measures. So I, I I don't think like I'm expecting teams that are really good that are trying to win it all to to rest their best players strategically down the stretch here. And that is that's not what you want. I mean, there are nationally televised games that will not have the the superstar draws in them, and that's that's a huge bummer. Um, what you just hope for is just everybody being healthy when the games really matter in the postseason. Uh, but there's no guarantee that that's going to be the case either. It's a great point. And it's also one other thing we should keep in mind as a contrast um, to the bubble, right? Where we did have the shutdown last year, four months, guys aren't playing. So at least they're coming in somewhat fresh. Now, are they in perfect shape? No, but they were able to kind of work them with themselves into shape by the time the playoffs started. And because they're playing in just a single location, they get into a nice groove during those playoffs. And I think we saw some pretty high-level basketball during those uh, bubble playoffs, um, in my opinion, and and some really amazing scoring explosions from a lot of different guys who just got into, you know, kind of a great groove. This year, I think it's going to be a much different thing heading towards the playoffs, where teams are going to kind of be limping in. Uh, They're not going to have a huge gap in the schedule to sort of get their bodies right. They're going to be in a situation where, you know, they may not have some guys at all if there's injuries late in the season. So I love what San Antonio is doing from a preemptive strategy. And I really do think we could see other teams, you know, adopt a similar approach just so they can make sure that they're as, you know, fresh and ready to go when those playoffs start. Uh, as possible, because this is going to be a grueling playoffs too. You're going to have the travel that you didn't have last year. Um, You're obviously going to have higher pressure moments. You're probably still going to have some isolation aspects to their lives. Even if players are vaccinated, they're still going to be in situations where it's not a normal experience and, and dealing with the stress of the playoffs can get really tough. 
I remember that's when things were very difficult in the bubble, when the pressure on the court ramped up and combined with some of the things the players were dealing off the court, um, such as the Black Lives Matters protests and, and some of the uh, you know police brutality incidents, right? So, um, you know, to me, I'm starting to get a little bit worried here about the quality of play in the playoffs. Now, it's probably a little premature to do that, um, but so far this season, I've been a little bit underwhelmed with the on-court product, and these injuries lately aren't helping. Let me ask you this, Michael, on the LeBron injury specifically. Can he still win MVP or has that ship sailed? Like how much time can he miss here and still be in the mix? Because we said it all the way back in December, this was going to be the best MVP race in years and years. It's absolutely shaped up that way. But now we're getting to a situation where guys are sort of falling by the wayside one by one. So what does this injury mean for LeBron's MVP hopes? It's shaped up that way until Embiid went down, until LeBron went down, and now like James Harden is in the top four, top three, which is really something given how he started the season. Um, I I think that this injury it probably ends his chances, um, which is a it's a bummer to say. Uh, I think you know if he's only out three weeks, two to three weeks, which is really generous. And I don't think, I think he'll be out a little bit longer than that. But if he's only out that long and then, you know, the Lakers are terrible when he's out, which is something that I look at because the word value is in the awards title and we should look at it that way. Um, uh, If they're terrible when he's out and then he comes back and kind of saves them and maybe drags them to home court somehow, then yeah, he's probably going to get the MVP regardless, but I, I have a hard time seeing that scenario play out. So unfortunately, I, I really do think that this injury, um, it, it really diminishes his chances of winning uh, the MVP, something that he clearly wanted. And I wonder if it was on his mind when he was walking off the court um, and he like threw that chair down, you know, he smacked that chair, which really told me i was like he's gonna be out a while like <laughs> that's that's it like uh he's not coming back anytime soon if he was showing that level of aggression and and, and anger uh well so... not only that the people in the building michael said it was like a blood curdling scream like it was really uncomfortable and you know the media's got to sit up at the back of the 100 level so they're really removed from the court and they were like yeah i wish i could unhear that like it did not sound good and it looked pretty painful Anytime a guy gets undercut, man, it just makes me sick to my stomach. I don't know if that was I didn't it wasn't intentional. It was just kind of awkward, but no. man, you hate to see a leg go that direction. And we obviously wish the best for LeBron. I think, you know, good news standpoint, like he's gonna be back in time for the playoffs one way or the other, right? And that's sort of the most important thing. Uh, when you're looking at, you know, their potential first round matchups, I think they would still be favored in any first round matchup as long as LeBron and Anthony Davis are healthy. Would you agree? Favored? Hmm. I mean, it's tricky. I guess like favored by Vegas or favored by the pundits. No, no, I know what you mean, though. I know what you mean. Well, let me me put it this way. If it's like 2-7 Phoenix versus Lakers and LeBron and AD are healthy, maybe they've only played 10 games together by the time they take the court for that series. I'm still taking Lakers in like five, man. I I don't think I would be that bullish on the Lakers. As you, uh, but there's a lot of stuff that we don't know when we're trying to look out this far away. Like, if Kyle Kuzma shoots 22% from the three point line throughout this stretch when the Lakers clearly need him to be a number one scoring op- option or a number two scoring option, then that's concerning, right? Like, if the, if the role players really stink it up 
throughout this stretch and the Lakers just look like the worst team in the league. Like if their defense completely falls apart and crumbles and is in like the low or high 20s, uh, then that's 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 trouble. And it's like LeBron and AD are terrific, unbelievable superheroes on a basketball court. But if they're up against a team like Phoenix or Utah or whoever that's like humming going into the playoffs and looks really good and still has this net rating that's in double digits or nearing double digits, like I, I don't know if I can just say that the Lakers are the favorite because of what happened last year in the bubble and because of what we know what the, of what they're capable of. I think that that would be maybe a little bit of a misguided way to look at it. No, I hear you. I think if you're Rob Polinka, you've got to get all the agents of your f- upcoming free agents on the phone and be like, guys, now is the time to make that push, right? We need everything you've got. Montrez Harrell, Taylor Horton Tucker, whoever else it might be trying to get a payday down the road. Alex Caruso, now is your moment. Dennis Schroeder, we are ready, willing, and able with an extension offer. Go out there and save the day. Please try it. You know, on the MVP thing here quickly, I think basically the over-under is three weeks. If he can get back in three weeks, I think he would still have a shot. I mean, he's the number one player in real plus-minus right now. So that tells you they're going to be losing a lot of games without him during that stretch. I think there is a way where that can work to his benefit, potentially. Uh, If they just fall apart without him, he comes back to save the day. If it's longer than three weeks, I don't see it. And, you know, we were saying, well, this MVP race is getting less interesting with these headliners like LeBron and and Joel Embiid not in it. It's still pretty compelling, Michael. I mean, you've got Nikola Jokic, Damian Lillard, James Harden, Giannis back in the mix. I mean, you've got some really legit candidates. Uh, Who's your favorite as it stands right now? I think personally, I would go Jokic. He was my first quarter MVP. He's been rock solid. You've seen Denver make some upward momentum in the standings. I think if LeBron misses more than three weeks and Denver can get a top four seed in the West, I think Jokic is going to be the MVP. What do you think? I don't necessarily disagree with that. I think it's a three-man race right now because I just can't bring myself to seeing Harden win this award. I just think that would be a total travesty. But we've gone over that. Um, I think that you know the other three guys that you named, Jokic, Dame, Giannis, I think if their teams continue to play well and they don't miss any time and their on-off numbers continue to just sparkle, then it's going to be really interesting to see which one of them pulls away. And I, I think that the Giannis voter fatigue thing, just like if you look at how good the Bucks are with him on the floor versus when he's off, if you look at the numbers that are just uh, absurd once again, I, I don't know. Like, I can see the three-in-a-row thing happening for him. I think if voters have the option of voting for Giannis or voting for Jokic, they're going to vote for Jokic, though, because it's, I, I do think that the voter fatigue does exist. But the Giannis, I, I just would not rule Giannis out. And he's just barely been in the discussion this entire year, even though he's he's been a phenomenal basketball player. No, if his name was like, uh, you know, Bill Dixon or whatever, and you just had his stats, his team record, uh, you know, his impact, his advanced numbers, and, you know, their place in the standings. He'd be the runaway favorite. He'd yeah. be the runaway favorite. Right it now. would be like, hey, congrats, Bill. You've got this thing locked up, you know, but it's 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 so funny how the narratives overcome these things. But I'm with you. I think voters would favor Jokic over Giannis right now, head to head. And I actually think that they would like relish giving Dame the MVP over Giannis 
for narrative type reasons too. Now, this is just us trying to handicap a field where, uh, you know, how are independent media members going to view these things as a collective? But that's sort of the way that I look at it. All right, one final question here on the LeBron injury fallout. Now, Michael, have you begun preparing for that Brooklyn Nets championship parade to go right by your front door? (laughs) I actually asked this question to uh, my wife yesterday. I was like, I think we're going to get a parade in our neighborhood. Isn't that cool? It finally (laughs) hit, Michael. It only took March 22nd. I've been saying this since December for you. Are you officially on the bandwagon? Does that mean you're going to have a float? No, I I watched uh, Blake, his first basket uh, as a Brooklyn Net was a dunk, and I was just like, this is just too much. (laughs) It's just too much, this team. So let me ask Um, you, a bunch of uh, Open Floor Glow members reached out after he made that dunk, and they're like, is this the clearest example of player tanking that we've ever seen? A guy going out of his way to go more than a year without dunking, so much so that it becomes headline news on television programs. His very first game, his very first basket He's blowing by a guy on the perimeter and rising up for a very authoritative finish. I mean, this is not like, hey, I'm a 55-year-old guy who can still kind of get the ball above the rim. You know, we see those videos go around on social media every once in a while. This was, and it also wasn't, to be honest, peak Blake Griffin 2012 either. But it was a nice dunk, Michael, and it was quite the coincidence. Did you feel like this was player tanking? Are we seeing that in action right now? You know how I feel about the player tank. When the players yeah. can kind of manipulate themselves from one market to another by maybe not putting out max effort in certain situations. Is that what we saw? I mean, I, I was this is why I was bullish about Blake like in Brooklyn. I thought he would be rejuvenated. I thought he would look like a different player. It's not like he dropped fifteen in his debut. Um he was otherwise I mean, he had a block on Bradley Beal that was actually like kind of stunning but it's not like he was you know as you said it's not like he was peak Blake athletically or anything like that I I, I do think that being surrounded by Harden and Kyrie and Joe Harris and all the space that he's had on that particular play uh, did him well and served him well but no I, I do think that you know he was not <laughs> we're gonna see a different version of him over the next few months than we saw over the last few months that's for sure Two thoughts. First of all, I really hope Joe Harris gets to cash in on the role player gets random endorsement deals thing as this Brooklyn Net, uh, you know, movement kind of gains momentum, right? Because we've seen guys like Kuzma or other role players on on various title teams from the past really carve out nice niches for themselves. Joe Harris is really good, and he is just absolute killer, and he fits perfectly with that group. And I feel like he should be a lot more famous than he is. And there's going to be some third-tier brand out there that figures it out, throws an endorsement deal at him, and gets all sorts of visibility during this championship run. So all you brand managers out there, this is your opportunity. Buy low on uh, Joe Harris. It's going to be great for you. (laughs) My second thought, Michael, is it unfair that the Brooklyn Nets can roll out an all-Hall of Famer lineup with Kyrie, James Harden, Kevin Durant, Blake Griffin, and Nick Claxton. I mean, is that fair to the future uh, opponents that they're going to have to face in the playoffs? I thought you were going to go with Bruce Brown as your fifth guy. Um, also a possibility. Worked. Well, that's <laughs> yeah. the thing. Like, Michael, they got too many Hall of Famers even to play them all at the same time. 
it's truly incredible. Sometimes I watch them and I'm like, Steve Nash could wear a jersey and be on the floor and they'd still win the championship. But um, well, it would be wide open but- shot after wide open shot, just like <laughs> Joe Harris, man, I swear. Uh, they're actually getting, in all seriousness, they're getting pretty good minutes from Claxon. And uh, like you're saying, Bruce Brown oh, yeah. as well. Yeah, I, I, I am... It's starting to feel like their year, which is such a weird thing to say because we honestly don't know where Kevin Durant is. Um, it's been more than a month now. Very, very strange. But are you, I mean, in seriousness, are you feeling the momentum building for the Nets? Because we've been tracking this one for months and you've been so resistant. Are you finally allowing your heart to believe? No, I mean, I think they're really good. And it wouldn't, it wouldn't surprise me at all if they won at all. Uh, but... You know, there's some other good teams out there. Um, the playoffs are going to be interesting. The trade deadline is going to be super interesting. Um, I do wonder if teams around the league are maybe going to be willing to uh, be a little bit more aggressive given the uncertainty of this season and just well, other team superstars going down. And I, I think that that's a fascinating thing to look at, too. On that point, Michael, if you were the Clippers, would you – I mean, you're already in buy mode for the trade deadline. Would these injuries to the Lakers make you even more aggressive? Would you feel like, hey, this is our boost back into this conversation? Because so far this season, I feel like there's been something missing. They really haven't quite been able to get up to that standard, right? Um, but I'm even just wondering, like, they need some sort of a backcourt injection, right? Like, can they, can you find something, even if it's not going to blow anybody away – just something to give you a little bit of boost and, and uh, just a shakeup um, as you're going forward here the next couple of months because I like the Clippers in a matchup with the Lakers a lot more right now than I did even a week ago solely because of these injury issues and the impacts it could have hmm. over these next couple months. Yeah, I mean, the Clippers should be – should like I don't think there was a level of aggression they could have reached in terms of needing to make a deal – just because of the LeBron trade, if that makes it, I mean, the LeBron injury, if that makes any sense. Like, this team absolutely needs to, if there's one team in the entire NBA I'm looking at that needs to make a move, um, it's them. And if they don't make a trade, then, like, they know that they're getting someone, be it Andre Drummond, I don't know who, on the buyout market. Uh, because, yeah, I, th- this team as currently constructed just does not seem like a team that can win four straight playoff series. And I say that, as you know, like the greatest Kawhi Leonard stan who has ever lived. So if it's coming from me, then I don't know. Clippers should be they should be very aggressive before the trade deadline. Yeah, I just don't like Andre Drummond at point guard for them. Gotta say, uh, <laughs> no. I mean, I think to me, that's like their need. I can understand if you grab a Drummond off a of buyout market. Yeah, why not? You know, I mean, if it's just a, a matter of hey, everybody's sort of competing for this ring chaser who who's trying to set himself up for a nice platform for his next contract, that's a fine move. But they have some pretty dire needs there in the backcourt. Beverly's been in and out with injuries. Lou Williams has seen his role cut, his production diminish. I don't really trust him as a playoff player. And then Reggie Jackson and the rest of the guys they've got back there, it's just you know very difficult to watch. And then you've got Luke Kennard, who's been completely thrown out of the rotation. That's always a bad sign. So yeah. they need to make a little move there. Uh, there's no question about it. This is it. We've got an Amex Platinum Pro on our hands, ladies and gentlemen. We haven't seen anyone relax like this before in the Centurion Lounge. Is he connecting to complimentary Wi-Fi? Oh, my. Look at that. He is. And you will not believe where he's going next. The Amex dedicated card member entrance for the win. 
Unbelievable! When you get travel perks with Amex Platinum, you're part of the action. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Getting ready to take on spring? Make your first move with the reliable performance and power of steel battery tools. From hedge trimmers and mowers to string trimmers and more, right now you can save $50 on select battery tool sets. Real steel. Offer valid on select AK system sets through June 16, 2024. See participating retailer for details. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cb for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Let's shift gears, though, Michael, to this LaMelo Ball injury because it was just gutting. You can tell from the kind of commentary from their coach, James Borrego, about the light he was in the locker room, the infectious spirit that he had, how he contributed to winning, that it's just such a bummer for them. I think it also is a situation where he was the runaway winner for Rookie of the Year. He -hmm. could still potentially win it, but I'm not sure he will. You don't think so? No. No, I don't. I, uh... I mean, put some respect on Anthony Edwards' name. Like, I, 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 Anthony Edwards has been... I know the numbers aren't super great, but he's 19 years old, so I don't really care that much about the numbers. Like, when you just watch him play, you're like, this dude is going to be a superstar. He is ridiculous. So, hey, Michael, you know how almost every episode you're like, can I give you a weird stat? And I'm always like, yes, that sounds great. <laughs> yeah. can, I, can I flip this around for you? Are you ready for a weird stat? Oh, I'm delighted. There is a chance that Anthony Edwards could win Rookie of the Year while having the fewest win shares of any player in his draft class. All we need to have happen, (laughs) all we need to have happen is Poku in Oklahoma City go on a little bit of a run because right now Anthony Edwards is second to last in win shares. Poku is dead last, but it's fractional. I mean, it's a very small difference. Isn't that incredible? Like, I was looking that up because I was thinking, huh, well, obviously Halliburton quickly. There's some guys who are going to be in this rookie of the year mix, um, you know, given that LaMelo is going to be out for basically the next two months, we're assuming. And of course, Edwards has had some real momentum here lately, 40 plus points, really showing the type of scoring game, Michael, that you were telling us to like hold on and wait for, you know, earlier in the season when there were some real Mm -hmm. struggles for him. And so that was paying off right on schedule. And I was thinking like, huh, well, you know, Edwards does stuff the stat sheet on occasion. He should be up there like fairly well. Nope. Second to last in win shares among his draft class. And of course, he's playing for a team that doesn't have an awful lot of wins. So that's a a contributing factor as well. But Mm -hmm. I couldn't believe that. That is a ridiculous stat. Um, Thank you. I knew that. From the man himself. (laughs) I appreciate it. 
<laughs> I knew that his advanced numbers were absolutely atrocious, like uh, real plus minus and Raptor and just all of them. But to just compare him strictly to rookies and him be that bad in one uh, one metric is really interesting. But I, I do think that like it's so exciting to watch him play. Um, in particular, the way that he complements Carl uh, Anthony Towns and vice versa. It's just like if I was a Timberwolves fan, I would be super excited. Like I would have a reason to be excited about the future. I don't know what they do with D'Angelo Russell, but if I was at front office, I'd be like, okay, we have two legitimate building blocks. We need to have every decision revolve around how we can accentuate these two and how they um, coexist on the court. Because I just think like they are like a pick and roll with those two is going to be unguardable in two years. And so, uh, so yeah, I'm, I'm just really high on them and I'm really excited when I watch them play. Michael, can I get a Mr. Manners etiquette ruling on a D'Angelo Russell tweet? Because, you know, within hours after LaMelo's injury surfaces um, on Sunday, Russell tweeted something along the lines of, you know, Anthony Edwards, rookie of the year. And I think he was trying to stand up for his teammate. But I saw a number of people who were like, you know, kind of too soon, bro. They didn't like the idea of kind of campaigning for your guy or you know, trying to benefit at this moment of heartbreak for another franchise, another fan base and organization. So thumbs up or thumbs down on the immediate campaigning for awards following an injury. What is what's the appropriate timeline? How long should Russell have waited before saying that? I have absolutely no problem with Russell tweeting that. I did not see the tweet. You're bringing it to my attention right now in real time. But I mean, there should be some sort yeah. of a delay. I mean, you can't just do it when the guy's like on the <laughs> hospital bed, Michael. <laughs> no time like the present. I mean, you, you know, tomorrow is not promised to any of us. I, I, I there's I mean, a way like, to do it. I think is the way that I'm coming at it, right? Like, for example, I think that. Well, did he like? Did he? Did he like quote tweet Woj and be like Anthony Edwards ROI? Or no, I don't think it was a quote tweet. I just think he tweeted the guys, you know, his his at, and then he said Rookie of the Year, and I think it was one of those, you know, emoji faces, you know, kind of like don't be sleeping on him or whatever they're trying to say with that. Who knows the kids these days, Michael? But it was just quick. I think was what upset people. There's a way to do it. I mean, wouldn't you at least say like, wow, incredible rookie season from LaMelo Ball, you know, but we've got a great guy here in Minnesota with Anthony Edwards who's, you know, going under the radar. Like there might be a way to do it. For example, when I was writing up the news, I still think LaMelo is going to make first team all rookie. And I think he actually still has kind of a shot to win rookie of the year. I'm not going to rule it out. I think it's more likely than not that somebody else gets it. But he's still somewhat in the mix. And you remember that crazy Embiid versus Brogdon debate that, uh, you know, popped up a Mm. few years ago when Embiid was like only played like 30 games or something like that. and was still like made it, you know, fairly interesting that year. Um, I could see something similar developing just because LaMelo was at a completely different level in terms of impact, especially once he moved in that starting lineup compared to everybody else in his class. All right. On a more serious note, what do you do if you're Charlotte here, Michael? Um, you wanted to make the playoffs because Michael Jordan always wants to make the playoffs. LaMelo, as your coach said, is driving a lot of these victories. Do you still just try to go forward with the same plan and hope that you've got enough uh, other talent and, you know, maybe guys like 
Gordon Hayward and Terry Rozier, who weren't getting as much attention because of LaMelo's presence, now get a little bit more attention nationally for their roles and kind of helping Charlotte along. Do you pull the plug a little bit here and say, well, if we don't have LaMelo, kind of what's the point? Maybe try to play for some draft picks. I mean, what do you do here? What's your outlook for the next two months? Do you just kind of walk around with your hands in your pockets and your head down and listening to kind of sad Taylor Swift breakup music and just imagine what could have been? Like, where do you go with this? Yeah, I mean, it's obviously a bummer. Um, I, you know, the standings are so tight and... Even though LaMelo, you know, his on-off numbers aren't... Like, the Hornets have been better all year when he's not on the floor. Uh, And even if you just kind of isolate the last 15 games, they've been better when he's off the floor. But he just... He transforms them. Like, he makes them so much faster, so much more um, exciting in transition. Like, the numbers there really shine. And then there's just unquantifiable metrics that... Um, you know, when he's on the floor with other guys, like it's just, it's a more lively experience for them and he elevates everyone and he draws attention and he's super smart and, uh, super entertaining. Uh, if I'm, I guess like if I'm Charlotte's front office, what this injury does is it prevents me from getting better, uh, this year. And, And what I mean by that is, you know, I'm writing a column this week. It's just like a trade deadline primer. And I had a few fake trades in there with Charlotte where I was like they could make some moves to upgrade at the deadline and yeah you know, we were talking give, about maybe trading Devonte yeah. Graham too right so how does this yep. shake that up well I don't think that it's well Devonte is interesting because like if you can get the right I, I I don't know if this injury really impacts too much of what you're trying to do with Devonte because um you could plug him into the starting five. I would imagine that he's going to now get his spot back in the starting lineup. And um, he's not LaMelo, but he's he's pretty good. And the Hornets have been really good with him on the floor this season. But I don't know how it changes the future with him. And the whole reason we were talking about why they needed to trade him is because he's hitting restricted free agency. And this team already has Terry Rozier, Gordon Hayward, and LaMelo Ball going forward. So why would you need Devontae Graham? Why would you need to pay him? So maybe uh, they kind of see the writing on the wall and they still move on from Devante, knowing that even if you do keep him making the playoffs or making the, a play, even making um, the play-in round is just not a guarantee for this team. Um, but what's really just a bummer is like, I, I was really excited to see if they would move from like Cody, like package Cody Zeller with, um, one of their young pieces and maybe a draft pick and just like get really aggressive. Uh, they were like a dark horse in that regard for me. And they're not going to do that now. I would be, I would be very surprised. That doesn't make a lot of sense to, to go for it this season. Um, so that's a bummer. Uh, that's not what you want, but no, they were sneaky buyers for sure, because they had some upward momentum. They have a future franchise level player they had some need to rebalance their roster because they had so much backcourt depth and some some frontcourt pieces you probably would want to you know to improve on if you could. And I'm with you. I think this probably winds up having a muting effect. You just roll everything over to the summer and see where it goes from there. Let me ask you this: Looking back on the rookie year of Lamelo, and we probably gave him a little bit of short shrift on this podcast. We didn't you know get as obsessed with him as some other podcasts out there have really just gone all in with the LaMelo talk. And I totally respect it because he has been, you know, quite fun. 
what was your favorite LaMelo moment of the year? For me, it was when he got his head-to-head game against his brother, Lonzo, and mm-hmm. they did the jersey uh, swap. And I'm picturing in that moment, like, young kid brother is going to be, like, starstruck to be on the same court as his older brother. Here he is, finally in the NBA. What a crowning moment. LaMelo just looked like, whatever, you know, cool. Another game. He goes out and almost has a triple-double, and I think he had more stats across the board than Lonzo did in their first matchup. That was when I was like, oh, wow. Like, all this talk ever since he was 16 that he was going to be the best of the ball children has already paid off, like, two weeks into his uh, NBA career. And this just this guy's just ready to go primetime, um, you know, right out of the gate. That kind of opened my eyes a little bit. Um, you know, kind of a smaller, not necessarily basketball-specific moment, but just more of a uh, an aura, a swagger, a confidence, um, you know, type glance. What was your favorite LaMelo moment? So before I give you my favorite, and I have two, what you just said, you know, I've been thinking about this, and I, I haven't really seen it anywhere, but maybe someone has brought it up. But the possibility of Charlotte throwing a massive offer sheet at Lonzo like why Why has no one can you answer me why no one has like kind of done a deep dive there and seen if that well, was even possible I'll take it one step further not only do I want to see that I want to see them treat LaMelo like Milwaukee treated Giannis and bring LiAngelo give him a roster spot let's turn this entire <laughs> thing into the Ball Brothers show why not I mean he, he has look he's not going to probably be as good as Giannis but He's the best thing that's happened to Charlotte in an awful long time, and we're only a couple years away. If he really, truly does progress along his best-case scenario track, where he's going to have an awful, awful lot of influence in that uh, kind of a smaller market team, you know? 100%. Um, So I just wanted to throw that possibility out there in case... uh, Well, if you're Lonzo, though, if you're Lonzo, can you go play on your younger brother's team? That's, That's a tough pill to swallow, isn't it? If I'm Lonzo, I want to play with Zion for the rest of my life. So I would, <laughs> I think that that would be a bummer. And yeah, I'm not, there's like no chance that I'm ever going to get the last shot either, which that you're right, that it would be a tough pill to swallow with my little brother um, getting paid more money than me eventually and no, by the Char- same team. And, <laughs> Charlotte's yeah. the perfect team to do this though. Cause remember they used to have Rod Higgins' kid. Michael has like, seven of his family members in various front office roles and buddies you know it's like that's kind of been their vibe for a while it would be hilarious if they got all three ball brothers but i digress michael give me your favorite Lamelo moments okay so real quick my two favorites um the first was his tip dunk over demonta sabonis uh against the pacers it was earlier this season it was just like out of nowhere, uh, I, I I did this interview with Eric Collins, who is the play-by-play announcer for the Charlotte Hornets, and I asked him for his favorite call of the season. And I told him it didn't have to be about LaMelo, but it was about LaMelo regardless. And um, he picked that tip dunk because he just had no idea that LaMelo could do something like that. So it was just eye-opening for everyone who was around the team that he had that type of those type of ups and that type of aggression. Um, So that play really stands out um, in my mind's eye. And the other one, he threw this full-length, like real legitimate full-length baseball pass, like not from the free throw line, not from his own um, 
uh, uh, the top of the key or anything. It was like legitimately he was standing basically out of bounds. Full length baseball pass to Gordon Hayward who caught it on the opposite baseline and in one motion hit this fading eight footer against the Knicks. Um, really random play, but just so beautiful. Like one of the most beautiful plays I've, I've seen anyone make all season. So there's like dozens of them. If you just watch the Hornets play basketball regularly, he makes like two or three really memorable plays a game, but those two have stood out in my mind. Yeah, no question. I mean, he was a highlight factory all season long. His rookie year mixtape, even though he only wound up playing in something like, what, uh, 30 or 40 games, is going to be absolutely wild. And uh, they better make sure it's uh, narrated by your buddy because that guy has had a great season. I hope somebody checks on him, Michael. Maybe do a follow-up text. Just see, hey, you all good? (laughs) Maybe send in something like that. Um, My last question for you on LaMelo, and it's more of a state of the LaMelo union type question. I've seen a lot of debates about like LaMelo versus Trey, LaMelo versus Ja, like who would you rather have, you know, for the next 10 years, right? So here's a list of under 23 playmakers, and maybe I've forgotten some, but I'm just going to, you know, list their names off quickly. And I want you to tell me exactly where does LaMelo stack up in this group for you, okay? So we got Luca, Trey, Shea Gilchrist Alexander, LaMelo Ball, Tyrese Halliburton, Colin Sexton, John Morant, Kobe White, Darius Garland, Markel Fultz, Anthony Edwards, Tyler Hero. Now, that was just sort of like a rough look through some of the guys who had been producing, uh, you know, age 22 or younger this season. How many of those guys are like definitely above LaMelo for you, or where does he kind of fit in that pecking order? So... I came prepared for this question. Um, oh, boy. Power, have, power ranking? I, I have tiered uh, all of the players that you just mentioned. Um, you know, tiers, by I the think, way, in this kind of conversation is just an easy way to have ties. And you know how I feel about ties, Michael. We need rankings, you know? <laughs> um, I know. I'm sorry. I apologize. But this is the best I could do. Um I mean, number one is clear, uh, and he, I will just say he, he is number one in, in this fake power ranking tier system, whatever. It's Luca. Like, he's just above and beyond everybody. Uh, just uh, nothing controversial there. He's incredible, like, absolutely ridiculous. He went eight for nine from the three-point line last night. I don't know if you saw that game. Like, what, oh, he, like, what is he, even he's happening? A, he's a sleeper MVP candidate, too. I mean, I'm not, you know, it, it would take some work, but it's not impossible. But I'm with you. No debate there. So who's your tier two? Okay, so tier two, these are just guys who you can legitimately build around and be a competitive team, maybe something even more. Um, I have Shea, Trey Young, John Morant, LaMelo, and I'm including Anthony Edwards. I'm just, I, I don't know if that's fair or not, but he's just absolutely incredible to me. So that one feels a little bit premature to me, but I don't hate it from you. So let's dig into this tier two, because I think you've got the exact right names. I think all those other names I was throwing out, they're tier three, tier four, tier five. They're just not really in this conversation. So it really boils down to Trey, Shea, LaMelo, and Ja. Now from those four, where would you have LaMelo? This is like ranking the Mount Rushmore of upcoming prospects who look really, really interesting, but maybe aren't quite yet super duper stars. And this is going to be subject to change probably every month. Tomorrow. Right? Yes. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Well, so I guess like before I answer, are we, are we, 
Is the question meant to figure out who I would start a team with tomorrow or who's just like a better player right now? Let's go with who would you rather have for the next 10 years? Like if you had drafted this guy, he's going to be your guy. You're all in building around him. You know, this is your centerpiece. I'm going to give you one of these four guys as a centerpiece and health is going to count. Size is going to count, you know, style of play and fit with your teammates. Like all of that stuff is going to count. Wow. Uh, I think LaMelo's number one. Wow. Really, Michael? Yeah. Yeah. Um, a lot of it for me has to do with size. And I, like, I just, if I'm building around, if I'm having Trey on my team for the next 10 years, like I love Trey. Anyone who listens to this podcast knows that. But, you know, in the playoffs, it's going to be really interesting to see how he holds up. Um, same thing, I guess, with Ja, although I'm not saying he's a weak defender or anything like that. I just think that there are size-related deficiencies that you can't make up. Uh, Shea is just tremendous. I, I see no faults in his offensive game this season or anything like that. Defensively, there's a little bit you want to see more of um, from him. I'm not saying that the Lamelo is... Uh, Kawhi Leonard or anything like that but he's like a pretty good rebounder and he tries and he's really smart he's got super fast hands and he competes on switches um, so I, I mean am I, am I crazy here or would you have LaMelo number one too no this is why I did it because I think it's so close I think when I'm looking at this you know Trey to me there is a fundamental flaw with the lack of size in the defense that I would be worried about building around I don't think it's impossible to build around him but I do think it's pretty difficult and to win on the ultra highest level I would just be concerned that that's always going to be something that kind of hampers me with LaMelo I don't really see any glaring weaknesses like that so I would put a player like LaMelo above Trey counting on this idea that you know he's going to be able to be passable on defense and then just an awesome offensive engine and also counting on the idea that he's going to be a league average three-point shooter or better which is going to open up an awful lot of things for his passing and his ability right and Um, the the pull-up threes like that's a huge part of his game he's hitting pull-up threes like absolutely that matters now i would still hold him a little bit back in this conversation i think first of all my mind went immediately to John Morant. Now, he's had injury issues. He has the size issues. He also has the shooting issues. He's been a pretty rough three-point shooter this year, and we were expecting to see more consistency in his shooting motion and just better results than we've seen so far. But I just love his mentality as a leader, as somebody who makes his teammates better, and as someone who can just break down a defense on basically any possession. And I do wonder, like, does some of the transition stuff that really makes LaMelo awesome, does that dry up in the playoffs? Would you rather have Jaw in those kinds of scenarios? And then also, I just love Jaw's commitment to the game. I feel like this guy is absolutely obsessed. He's going to get you know every last ounce out of his abilities. And so right now, based solely on what we've seen from LaMelo, I'm going to hold him back just because I want to see more. I would probably have Jaw one, Shea two, then, oh, wow. and then LaMelo. I think you and I sleep on Shea on this podcast, and I do think he deserves some love. But, you know, Michael, I'm also coming at this from the perspective of respect has to be earned. You know what I mean? I don't want to preemptively mm-hmm you know, put these guys, uh, you know, in situations where they haven't quite earned it yet. So that's probably how I would do it. But I actually think most people would agree with you. I think a lot of people would view LaMelo as a really safe bet to be a longtime franchise guard. 
someone who's easy to build around, someone who's guaranteed to make his teammates better, someone who gives your organization a style on the court, a personality off the court, super marketable. I think his jerseys are going to be among the best sellers next year. I think they're going to be on Christmas Day next year. And I think Mm -hmm. that, um, you know, it's they lucked into it, man. Having that fall into their lap at uh, the third pick, I think that's the silver lining for Hornets fans here is, uh, you know, you, you take what you got from LaMelo for sure, and you've got an awful lot of brighter days to come. Do you care about the next two tiers I have? or should we No, just no, not on? at all. Not at all. You you nailed it. I mean, you got the exact four <laughs> right. And actually, your top tier was the best. So I'm glad that we got a, a ranking out of you. And, and to know that it goes Luca, LaMelo, and then everyone else. That's pretty fascinating, Michael. That's a lot. I would be uh, making a pull quote graphic out of that if I was a, a social media manager just to hype up LaMelo. No question about it. Michael, I want to you know conclude this show here with a couple questions uh, just scattered around the league. We did get a report today in advance of Thursday's trade deadline that uh, Jared Weiss and Sam Amick of The Athletic have reported that Aaron Gordon, one of your favorite players to ever mention in trade rumors, has reportedly told the Orlando Magic he would like to be moved. And there's been a lot of discussion about different places he could land. I saw the Portland Trailblazers in there. There's a few other uh, rumors going around here over the last couple of days. Here's my question for you, Michael, and it's going to sound kind of jerky, but I need to ask it anyway. Does Aaron Gordon do anything well? Like, is he just basically Jeff Green? Like, why is the whole trade deadline revolving around a guy who's had years to show us, hey, here's my incredible NBA skill, and yet failed to do so? Does he have a position? Now, look, I love Aaron Gordon, the dunk contest champion. I actually like Aaron Gordon, the player, okay. I'm not sure I see the fascination in him as this big trade deadline mover. He just seems kind of average in a lot of different ways. Am I missing something? Um, I, you know, I, I really like Aaron Gordon. Um, and one of the reasons why is like, it's just theoretically what I can picture him being in a different situation where he's permanently playing the four, where he's setting screens, diving to the rim, where he's guarding five positions. Like right now, if you watch the Orlando magic play, like he's their backup point guard or maybe even their starting point guard because of injuries like that's the situation that they're in now and earlier in his career he's had to play the three there were there's been I don't even know how many head coaches he's played for how many offensive systems he's played in and had to learn and I just I'm a big believer in fit and context and if you put him on you know, I, I know you're going to laugh at me, but if you put him on the Boston Celtics, like that fit just makes so much sense. If you put him on the Atlanta Hawks, even that fit just makes so much sense. Like, um, well, here, so, here's why I made the statement the way I did, because I wrote that same column about Jeff Green at like three consecutive NBA trade deadlines. The Memphis Grizzlies, exactly what they need is Jeff Green. The fit is perfect. They're no longer this team that's stuck with the two bigs. They have a more versatile look that they can go to. And then it wound up being disappointing basically every single year because he fit well, but he wasn't kind of capable of raising his game or fulfilling the expectations that kind of built up around him, if that made sense, or at least sustaining it from night to night. And I'm a little bit worried that that's true with Aaron Gordon, right? I mean, we've seen... 
an awful lot of losses in Orlando. They're they're coming by those losses honestly. Now, this is not to pick on him. I mean, I look at the New Orleans Pelicans. They're losing a lot of games right now. A player like Brandon Ingram, who is significantly more talented um, than an Aaron Gordon, I feel like in certain situations, his presence is is contributing to that inconsistency, right? Where it's just like they can't string together the wins. It's always just a little bit of a tease. So I guess I'm in that category where it sounds great on paper. For sure, he would help Boston. Look, anybody can help Boston. But Aaron Gordon's not taking them back to Titletown, Michael. Pro- by himself, probably not. No, I don't think that, that just that one addition changes the entire look or perception or effectiveness of, of, of that team this season. But fundamentally, when I look at Aaron Gordon, I'm just been like, man, like, the draft picks that came in after him, the uh, just it's never really made a ton of sense. I, I, I always go back to um, and I'm not like blaming or getting upset at Frank Vogel. But when Frank Vogel publicly compared him to Paul George, I don't know if you remember that, but like that was kind of damning. Like that's just never uh, that's just never like what Aaron Gordon was supposed to be in the NBA. And that's perfectly fine. That's like there's nothing wrong with that. You don't have to be a primary ball handler who can hit pull up threes, who can get to the basket, who can run pick and roll like that's okay. You can still have a very effective um, role in the NBA and uh, one that's beneficial and valuable. And so I, I just don't think that he's ever going to find that um, in Orlando on the consistent level that he needs to, to be a player who makes people like you um, uh, not compare him to Jeff Green. Um, and no, I feel you. The ship has absolutely sailed. He should be traded. I just think, like, look, if that's the biggest name that moves at the deadline, we can all just, you know, wrap up the well, winners and losers columns pretty quickly. Like, we don't need to. No, we don't need to dwell on that. No, one hundred percent. But we we knew kind of. Me and you have been talking about this for weeks. Like, the deadline's probably going to be dull, and like we should be blessed if someone with his with even Aaron Gordon's stature gets moved honestly so you're begging for an Aaron Gordon trade right now I love it you know one assistant coach years ago posited to me that Aaron Gordon should be a small ball five like a Dwight Powell right where you basically don't let him create or shoot that much on the perimeter you use his activity and his bounce as a vertical threat go into the basket, and then you just play super versatile defensive lineups, basically using him in a bench role to kind of come in and shake things up. Now, that's a lot different than what we're describing. I think that natural like 3-4 role that you're talking about in Boston. What do you think about that idea? That one kind of blew my mind. I could see it for a while, but it never really developed that way because Orlando had a million bigs and they just, you know, they kept pushing Gordon down a position as opposed to moving him up a position. No, I mean, 100%. I, I I love that. Like, if he were to be in Boston, they would play lineups with Tatum, Jalen, Marcus, Gordon, and someone else who's a non-center. They would totally do that. Or they could even play him at the four, or just not even the four, just interchangeably in a, a wing-heavy uh, lineup and just play uh, Rob Williams or Tice at the five. Or, you know, I brought up Atlanta – like putting him next to Cam Reddish and DeAndre Hunter and uh, even in a lineup with Clint Capella and Trey Young, like that is very, that's that's tough, man. That's like a tough lineup. And he's hitting spot up threes this season. I know he's been inconsistent 
um, from behind the three-point line for most of his career. But uh, he's knocking them down right now. I just think, like, uh, you know, you bring up Dwight Powell. Like, the Draymond Green comparison has been there for a very long time. Um, that possibility. Um, I I just really want to see it for him. I no, want to see I, him I, I know. Sh- shine I, in a different role. That's the real headline here. If he really did request a trade, it's about time. Because Michael has requested an Aaron Gordon trade like 37 times in the last six years. <laughs> so we're ready for it. Michael, I want to close up with one last question. It kind of comes in from Tony. It's a little bit of a curveball. He writes, hey, guys, I love the Open Floor podcast. I'm a street photographer, and I love listening to Ben taunt Michael while I'm out shooting. Oh, boy. Anyway, I've had this idea stuck in my craw for the past few weeks, and I just can't shake it. What if each team were only allowed to send one player to the All-Star game every year? Think about all the ramifications. Players would be less likely to team up, and they would be more likely to go to small market teams so they could be the alpha. Players that are thinking about joining another star will have to weigh that against fewer all-star appearances for the Hall of Fame conversation. As a lifelong Spurs fan, I would love rule changes that benefit small market teams. Ben and Michael, you guys can laugh at this ridiculous idea all you want. I'm just hoping I'll be able to stop thinking about it by now. So I guess he's out there just shooting these incredible photos and can't get this idea out of his head, Michael. Thanks to Tony for that question. What do you think? What would happen if they did come up with this rule? And would you be in favor of it, Michael? So, A plus for creativity. I like that. But if you did this, then, like, Anthony Davis wouldn't be in the All-Star game. Like, uh, James Harden and Kyrie Irving wouldn't be in the All-Star game. It wouldn't really be the All-Star game. It would be the Sumstar game, right? What is that? <laughs> Yeah, so like I don't, I don't think that that would be great for anyone. Um, well, Michael, uh, I, here's why. Here's why I brought this question up. I'm gonna twist it mm-hmm. for you. What if the rule was you could only have one max player per team? Would that accomplish the same leveling effect that he's hoping for? In other words, we're spreading the stars around so that every fan base, including the San Antonio Spurs fan base, gets to have a big time star with their max salary slot. And there wouldn't be as much team-up opportunities. In other words, rather than sacrificing the all-star credentials, which I'm not sure that would actually be a motivating factor for some of these stars. You know, if if my life is I get to be number two to LeBron on the Lakers and I get a week off in the middle of the season, I'm probably still taking that, even if I'm not going to have the recognition at the end of my career, because everybody would know the only reason why he wasn't an all-star was because of this goofy rule that Tony came up with, right? But what if it came with like serious financial repercussions, right? Like remember when the big three Heatles came together, LeBron had to give a little bit of money, like not quite the full max to sort of make the salary cap stuff work. Yeah. yeah what yeah. if that was like a real significant sacrifice because he just wasn't eligible for a max contract? Would that change player behavior? Obviously, the players union would never want to see this in a million years. But what do you think about that as an idea in theory? I mean, that's one way to, you're right, the players union would never go for this and the players would never go for this, but that's one way to promote um, parity, of, of course. And uh, it reminds me of, maybe I'm getting this wrong, but because I'm going off the top of my head, but uh, I believe you're only allowed one Rose Rule player on your roster. Um, and uh, I bring that up because the Celtics had Kyrie 
and we're trying to get Anthony Davis, and it was like com- some complicated. Maybe I'm just like totally butchering this, but um, there is a rule in place where there's certain contracts that you can't have multiple of um, on your roster. So, uh, yeah, so, the only yeah, trick like, with that one is that not every team has one of those guys because that's pretty hard to get to, right? So that's an easy yeah. limiting factor. It's like, yeah, you can't have two guys on these insane contracts. Well, it's like, well, good luck trying to find guys like that, right? But what if it was just like a straight max contract? What if like your number two player couldn't get anything more than like 80% of a max? So that's costing him, you know, tens of millions of dollars over the course of his second contract. Would that incentivize them to stay? It might. So what happens if I'm like, I'll take $10 less than the max? Then what would, it's like, is that, is that a way to kind of skirt Well, that's what, that's what I mean. Or? I was trying to come up with like a tiered, you know, percentage-based formula, right? Where one guy can make yeah. sort of like 25% more than anybody else on the max contract and everybody else has to be kind of a, a clear cut below that, mm-hmm. um, which is similar to how the Supermax works right now. But I guess I would be establishing a second class of players who aren't quite worth the Supermax but still are getting a you know a one player per team benefit on that strategy. I, I mean, I think like the the reason why this would not be a huge deterrent for players teaming up is that there's so many different revenue streams, and I think we would see even more revenue streams blossom if the league tried to shortchange its stars. Um, there's just so many opportunities to make money out there, and the amount of money that you can make even if you are not on a max contract these days is ridiculous like look at Rudy Gobert's contract it was not the most money he could make but it is still absolutely um, more than he could ever spend it's a lot of money <laughs> it's a it's a lot of money yeah it's a lot of money um so well, i don't think that necessarily there would be this um that would prevent super teams and super superstars from teaming up I think that's a great point, Michael. This brings me to one of my worst ideas that I ever had, which was that when I was thinking about LeBron and how he was getting boxed out on the title chase by those Golden State Warriors super teams, how I was thinking that he like makes enough from Nike and everybody else off the court that he should consider taking a minimum contract with the Warriors just so that he could get himself to like six or seven rings and have that for the GOAT debate. And just how like that is kind of the loophole if any superstar level player ever decided like I don't really care how much I'm getting paid by my team I'm willing to just go to whatever destination market I want that the entire league's dynamics would be completely screwed up so needless to say I'm happy and very glad that did not happen um, for all of our competitive balance watching and I think Tony this idea you need to take it and shove it man it's too crazy Um, but I I appreciated the creativity and I do think it's really important with the all-star game reward the very best players you know don't come up with any situation and i would actually prefer right now no conference designation on the voting i would just prefer the top 24 players regardless of conference and frankly even regardless of position at this point to be rewarded with those nominations because i do think they matter in the historical context you know i had that conversation last week with jack mccallum about how are we weighing uh, certain players for the hall of fame and, and one of the first things that we were going to is how many all-star appearances did chris bosh have how many did ben wallace have and these kinds of questions so to me those things matter the snub stuff uh um, you know, some people might say that's overplayed every year. To me, it's a very valid conversation that we should kind of keep in our mind because uh, the history should matter. And uh, I don't like artificially tweaking with that, Tony. It would really bother me. 
All right, Michael, I think we've reached the end of another episode of Open Floor. Guys, you can follow Michael on Instagram and Twitter at Michael Villasinvictorpina. I'm on Instagram at Ben.Golver, on Twitter at Ben Golver. Be sure to check out our show's page on Apple Podcasts by searching for Open Floor. That's two words. When you find our page, scroll down. It will say rate and review. Tap five stars. It's just that easy to help us spread the word. Be sure to email all your trade deadline reactions to us at openfloormail at gmail.com, openfloormail at gmail.com. All right, Michael, until later this week when we're going to have all sorts of juicy trade deadline stuff to to digest or not, I will talk to you. Talk soon, Ben. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cb for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Zumo Play is your destination for endless entertainment. With a diverse lineup of 350-plus live channels, movies, and full TV series, you'll easily find something to watch right away. And the best part? It's all free. Love music? Get lost in the 90s with iHeart 90s. Dance away with hip-hop beats and more on the iHeart Radio music channels. No logins, no signups, no accounts, no hassle. So what are you waiting for? Start streaming at play.xumo.com or download from the app and Google Play stores today. All you can stream with Zumo Play. Live Nation presents Concert Week. Now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirk Bentley, Fade, Hootie and the Blowfish, Janet Jackson, Kids Bob Kids, Megan Trainor, Bissell Pluma, Sarah McLaughlin. Get tickets to more than 5,000 summer shows for just $25. Until now through May 14th. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds to Mars, oh, and Two Door Cinema Club.